Father, I thank you for this congregational gathering, uh, the meeting of the body of Christ here in this local church. I thank you for your word, which is our most precious source for knowledge of who you are, who we are, and your instructions to us as your children and as your church. I ask that you bless this time of teaching from your word. May the words that I speak stem from your scriptures and direct attention to you and your purposes alone. May this time bring you glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to start off, I'd like to ask a couple of pointed questions. Do you think you have a right view or a right perspective of who God is? And in turn, do you have a right view of who you are? I believe these are two very important questions that every person, whether you're a professing believer or an unbeliever, must ask and answer. You see, the right perspective of God correctly informed through His Word is essential to having a correct perspective of who we are, how one receives and accepts the gospel, and for how we view God's church. I titled this sermon, You Could Learn a Lot from a Demon, and for the adults in the room, some of you may recognize the similarity of this title to a previous TV ad campaign from the 1980s whose slogan was... You could learn a lot from a dummy. If you go to the Ad Council website, it mentions the following in reference to this slogan, quote, The single most effective protection against death and serious injury in a car crash is the safety belt. Since Vince and Larry the crash test dummies were introduced to the American public in 1985, safety belt usage has increased from 14 to 79 percent, saving an estimated 85,000 lives and $3.2 billion in costs to society. So we could say that the intention of this ad campaign was to properly inform the general car riding and car driving public about seat belt safety. In short, to provide information in order for the public to formulate a correct perspective about seatbelts and their protective benefits. Unfortunately, there are numerous examples of things intended to protect and save that are underutilized or used incorrectly due to an incorrect perspective. Case in point, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration notes that in 2016, the seatbelt use in passenger vehicles saved an estimated 14,668 lives. And many Americans understand the life-saving value of the seatbelt, but nearly 27.5 million people still don't buckle up. A similar thing can be said of having an incorrect perspective of who God is. This certainly can be applied to the lost and unsaved, some having heard the truth of the gospel shared, but all choosing not to repent and trust in God as Lord and Savior, thereby remaining condemned in sin and headed toward eternal punishment and separation from God. In a relatively recent Gallup survey from May 2017, it says, quote, Fewer than one in four Americans, or 24%, now believe the Bible is the actual word of God, and is to be taken literally, word for word. And this is similar to 26% who view it as, quote, a book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Meanwhile, about half of Americans, a proportion largely unchanged over the years, fall into the middle saying the Bible is the inspired word of God, but that not all of it should be taken literally. Literally. 
So if you put that together, about three-quarters of Americans polled don't view the Word of God as the Word of God that's to be taken literally. So with these statistics and this prevailing view of the source that properly informs a right perspective of who God is, should it be surprising that the lost remain lost? In another survey by the American Culture and Faith Institute's Worldview Measurement Project in 2017, we see a dramatic difference between contemporary young millennials and the older generation adults. While 16% of the baby boomer and builder generations and 7% of the baby busters, in other words, older generation adults, say that they possess a so-called biblical worldview, only 4% of millennials said that they possess a biblical worldview. Only 59% of millennials considered themselves Christian compared to 72% of older generations. And while only 18% of adults over the age of 30 claim to be atheists or agnostic, 28% of millennials claim this. 33% of older generation adults say they are born-again Christians, that they will go to heaven with God after death only if they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as Savior. But only 20% of millennials say this. Case in point, 43% of older adults supported same-sex marriage, while 65% of those under 30 did, and only 6% of older adult generations claim to be in the LGBT community, but 15% of millennials did. So we see that an incorrect perspective of God, or no regard for God at all, shapes a non-biblical worldview that tolerates and even embraces sin. But how about those who profess to be Christians? Does calling oneself a Christian equate to having a correct perspective of who God is? In an article from The Federalist in 2016, it it reads, A survey of 3,000 people conducted by Lifeway Research and commissioned by Ligonier Ministries found that although Americans still overwhelmingly identify as Christian, Startling percentages of the nation embrace ancient errors condemned by all major Christian traditions. These are not minor points of doctrine, but core ideas that define Christianity itself. Now, the research group thought that these findings may have been skewed, given that it included many who called themselves Christians, but, quote, don't take their faith that seriously. So they conducted a second sub-study using a more stringent criteria for evangelical faith as defined by the National Association of Evangelicals. And they said only participants who called the Bible their highest authority said personal evangelism is important and indicated that trusting in Jesus' death on the cross is the only way of salvation. Only these people were labeled evangelical. Everyone expected them to perform better than most Americans, but no one expected them to perform worse. Seven in ten evangelicals, more than the population at large, said that Jesus was the first being God created. Fifty-six percent agreed that the Holy Spirit is a divine force, but not a personal being. They saw a huge increase in evangelicals, 28% up from 9%, who indicated that the third person of the Trinity is not equal with God the Father or Jesus. 
So do these so-called evangelicals have a right view of who God is? And how then does this shape their perspective of who they are, their sin, and the church? A recent article from Fox News was titled, When is it okay to quit church? Fox News. Now, this is in no way a Christian publication, but a mainstream popular news venue. The article was penned by a popular pastor in Southern California. And the article opens with the line, Americans change churches like some homeowners change air filters. Throw a little dirt or time in a certain direction, and it's time for change. And the article then goes on and says that according to Pew Research, there are four reasons why people change churches. Number one, sermon quality. Number two, welcoming environment or people. Number three, style of worship. And number four, location. And the article continues and states, the translation is clear. Americans treat church like a product to consume instead of as a family to belong. Now, I contend that both perspectives on the church, whether it's a product to consume or merely a family to belong to, are not founded entirely in a biblical perspective of God's church. So when those who profess to be Christians have an incorrect perspective of who God is or choose to ignore essential elements of who God is or disregard His word, what are they left with? Unfortunately, we're often left with, quote-unquote, Christian culture or ambiance, where we sing and cling to songs we consider as core truths that talk about, quote, joining with billions of creatures, evolving to become what God commands, or singing about how our wretched and ugly sinfulness can somehow be viewed and presented to a holy God as being graceful or sweet, or how God is now worshipped for his, quote, unquote, reckless love. As a popular Christian pop song on the radio states, quote, This feeling can't be wrong. I'm about to get my worship on. When left to our feelings and when worship is something we get on or off, there is no regard for God as God, no regard for sin, and no regard for His church. J.C. Ryle says, and the quote is in your bulletin, Beware of manufacturing a God of your own, a God who is all mercy but not just, a God who is all love but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own. He is not the God of the Bible. So I hope you can see a correct perspective of God is essential And a wrong perspective of who God is has consequences. It leaves people unrepentant and unsaved, rejecting the gospel. Or it deceives people into believing they are saved when they are not. Thankfully, Scripture provides us with what is critical to have a correct perspective of who God is. And in our passage today, we'll see three attributes about God that I think are essential to a right perspective of who He is. And we'll see that he chose an encounter with demons to show them to us. In short, you could learn a lot from a demon. Now, why could we learn from demons? Demons, as we read in Scripture, were angels originally created to worship and serve God. And when Satan rebelled, he was cast out of heaven and he took a multitude of angels with him. And these are the demons that we know of today. So together, Satan and these fallen angels or demons have present dominion in the world... However, they are still fallen angels. And Satan 
together, they have very clear knowledge of who God is and what his plans are. As John Piper wrote, quote, The devil can do biblical exposition. Even speaking propositions about the text's meaning, but the devil cannot exult over the divine glory of the meaning of Scripture. And J.C. Ryle says, Let us use diligently whatever religious knowledge we possess and ask continually that God would give us more. Let us never forget that the devil himself is a creature of vast head knowledge, and yet none the better for it because it is not rightly used. So Satan and demons have knowledge that we can glean from, that we can learn from, but that doesn't mean that we copy what they do. Now let's go to our passage now in Luke 8. In Luke 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 27, sorry, 26 through 39. This is a familiar story, I think, to most of us. There are parallel accounts of the same event in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, and in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. And let's read it together, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house but in tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him, and said in a loud voice, "What business do you have? Do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?" I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. In verse 32, Now there, were, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. For context, this story took place during the second year of Jesus' earthly ministry. And what did that ministry comprise of? Well, we see in Luke 4.43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. 
And in Luke 7, verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus' ministry was busy with teaching. We see that he taught in parables. He called people to repentance. He exposed the hypocrisy and lies of the Pharisees and scribes. In addition to his authoritative teaching, his miracles served to demonstrate his deity and power over the things of this world and in the spiritual realm. This included casting out demons, and in the book of Luke alone, we see several examples leading up to our passage today where Jesus has already cast out demons in Luke 4, verses 33 and 39 and 41, and in Luke 6, verse 18. Now, when we come to the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read, He began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. So Jesus was teaching to the Jewish crowds. In verses 4 through 15 in chapter 8, we see Jesus teaching the parable of the sower. And in verses 16 through 21, he teaches the parable of the lamp. And then we come down to verse 22, and we see that after a long stretch of teaching to the crowds in Galilee, Jesus and his disciples got in a boat and sailed to the other side of the lake, the lake being the Sea of Galilee. And they sailed over to the country of the Gerasenes, which is where our passage begins today. Along the way, the familiar story of the furious storm uh, takes place in verses 20 through, 22 through 25. This was a, such an enormous storm that it even scared experienced fishermen. And we see in verse 24 that Jesus calms the storm and uh, brings us to our passage this morning. So up to this point, Jesus has been ministering among the Jews, and our story this morning is his first time presenting himself among the Gentiles. And in verse 27, we see that as soon as Jesus and and his disciples get off of the boat in their tired and exhausted state from ministering in Galilee and dealing with this furious storm, that they are immediately encountered and met with a demon-possessed man. In Mark's account, it says that the moment they got off, they were immediately met by the demon-possessed man. And in fact, this man was possessed with demons. There were multiple demons. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 8, verse 28, it's noted that there were actually two demon-possessed men, but Luke's account focuses only on one of them, who was probably the more dominant person, uh, more dominant spokesperson of, of all these demons. And in verse 27, we see a description of how this demon-possessed man was. Let's read here. This man had not put on clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but was in tombs. So he hadn't put on any clothing for a long time. He was outwardly and publicly unclothed and naked, generally a sign of shamelessness and perversion. We know that following Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion against God in the garden, their nakedness was associated with a sense of shame and a desire to be covered and to hide themselves. 
Therefore, an open willingness to be unclothed, therefore, was a sign of shamelessness in spite of sin. An open nakedness was associated with acts of perversion and sexual sin. We also see that the man was not living in a house, but was in tombs. He was not assimilated with society, but was an outcast. He felt it more at home with the dead. And what was he doing there? Well, if we look at Mark's account, in Mark 5, verse 5, it says that he was constantly night and day, screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. So could you imagine this scene, this naked, unclothed man screaming and cutting and stabbing himself? It's quite horrific. In verse 29, in our passage here, We see that it had seized this man many times. These demons had seized this man many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So we see the demons had seized him, and he behaved in such a violent way that the public had to find some way to control him. They had to bind him up with chains and shackles and keep him under guard. And yet he would break his his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So this man was physically violent and uncontrolled to the point of needing to be restrained. In Matthew's account in verse uh, 28 of verse of uh, chapter 8 verse 28 it says he was not only violent towards himself but the demon-possessed man was also violent towards others. So this is the kind of person which, in our modern day today, would be a dangerous person uh, bent on hurting himself and hurting others, and this is a person that you would put in jail or in a psychiatric ward. And yet he somehow had some sort of incredible, even superhuman strength and was able to break those chains and escape from those who had been guarding him. Mark says in Mark 5, verse 4, He had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Now, I've never tried to break out of handcuffs or shackles or chains or anything. I would imagine that folks would potentially break bones or dislocate joints or tear skin while trying to break out of chains and shackles. And this poor man was likely hurt by these demon-driven acts, but he obviously had no control over them. So based on this description that we have here, this is nothing short of a terrifying, horrific freak show. This was the craziest and most violent of individuals, not merely someone acting funny or an awkward social outcast. This man terrorized people, he scared people, he mutilated himself, he was perverted, he was violent towards those who came near him, and this drove him to be chained up in tombs with guards placed to prevent his escape. Now, why, why was this man even possessed with demons in the first place? From what we described before, we know that Satan and his fallen angels exercised their power in the world, and they used people for their purposes. And typically, we know that demons work behind the scenes. They're covert. They're anonymous. But interestingly, the highest concentration of encounters with demons is in the gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly life. 
And there are a few examples in the Old Testament, and we also know that the apostles had cast out demons and evil spirits in the book of Acts. But really the highest concentration where we see physical outward encounters with demons is in the life of Christ. And this should come as no surprise. Satan's ultimate plan is to thwart God's plans. So when Jesus was in the world, it would make sense that Satan would be doing even more to try and thwart Jesus. Alternatively, it's also likely that Jesus' physical presence drew these demons out of their anonymity because of fear. And as such, we just simply see the demons more as they are visibly terrified of being before God. And we don't know much about this demon-possessed man himself or why he in particular was possessed. What we can reasonably conclude is that he was a Gentile and not a follower of God. God's obedient followers can never be possessed by demons. He may have participated in cult practices or idol worship, which was very prevalent in the Gentile countries. And he may have been practicing other forms of sin that simply invited demon possession. Regardless of the reasons, God permitted this man's demon possession. And not only that, the possession by many demons, all specifically for this encounter with Jesus. So from this encounter, as I would mentioned, we're going to see three attributes of God that are clearly demonstrated. And these attributes are unique only to God and are immutable. But more than simply the knowledge or awareness of these attributes, the response to them is what ultimately completes one's perspective. And so together with these three attributes, we will also see three responses that form the respective perspectives about God among those we will see in our passage today. And I want to point out that these attributes were blatantly present and obvious to the demons. But interestingly, they were veiled before people. And we know that in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself. And we can think of that as being that he emptied himself of the outwardly visible attributes of his deity. And we sing about this in in a popular Christmas hymn, as you guys know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. So Jesus, even though he was veiled in the form of man, was fully and completely God. And his attributes as God were very, very blatantly obvious to these demons. So let's look at the first attribute. The first attribute we find in verse 28. The first attribute is that God is the holy and glorious king. If we look in verse 28, these demons, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? So the demons cried out and fell before Jesus, and they acknowledged him as the son of the most high God. So at the mere sight of Jesus, these demons, or the demon-possessed man, physically placed themselves in a submissive position before Jesus and acknowledged him as God's Son, the Son of the Most High God. And then they go on and they say, I beg you, do not torment me. Do not torment me. So while these demons rejected God when they were angels in his presence, and while they followed Satan as their leader, these demons still knew Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. And they had no other response but to bow before him. The mere physical presence of the Holy God contrasted so greatly to their filthy evil 
They clearly saw Jesus as the glorious, holy, and majestic God that was above them and worthy of their full submission. From time to time, we come across images of people around dangerous animals. We see pictures of people petting tigers or lying down with lions or touching alligators. And some of you probably read about a man recently at Yellowstone who stood on the road taunting a bison. These images catch our attention because we say to ourselves, don't these people know what they're doing? Don't they know what that is? Don't they know it's dangerous to do stuff like that? I would argue that in those instances, we have a right view of the physically massive and dangerous animals, which results in our response to usually watch them at a distance and why we think folks are crazy when they don't. Similar to these demons, these demons knew who Jesus was and they knew how they had to behave around him. Jesus, the God-man, was fully God. He humbled himself in coming into, into the world in flesh, but never stopped being the one true God. He never relinquished anything that set him apart as God. He never compromised his perfect character. In doing so, he made it possible for God to dwell with abhorrent sinners. Yet the watching world often did not and does not respond to him like the demons did. Kevin DeYoung writes, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. The whole goal of our salvation is that we should be conformed to the image of God's Son. We see in Jesus the best, most practical, most human example of what it means to be holy. He is our model for love, our model for humility, our model for facing temptation, our model for steadfastness in the midst of suffering, and our model for obedience to the Father. We see all the virtues of holiness perfectly aligned in Christ. He was always gentle but never soft. He was bold but never brash. He was pure but never prudish. He was full of mercy but not at the expense of justice. He was full of truth but not at the expense of grace. We see in Scripture many examples of how people behaved and reacted at just a glimpse of God's glory, right? In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had sinned, they responded to the presence of God walking in the garden with shame. When Moses encountered just the backside of God in Exodus 34, it says that afterwards his face was literally shining And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 said, Woe is me when he found himself in the Lord's presence. We see that Saul fell down to the ground when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And another interesting example, if we can turn there briefly, we can turn to John 18. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' encounter with the Roman soldiers in John 18, verse 4 through 6. And it says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they, the Roman soldiers, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
So even though Jesus was veiled at this time as a man, just simply mentioning who he was was enough to make these Roman soldiers, who had no reason to worship God, uh, they immediately drew back and fell to the ground. The Old Testament Hebrew word for glory was kabod, which referred to a heavy weight such as one's possessions. If one was wealthy, their possessions weighed a lot, and with much weight came much clout, influence, and greatness. Dr. Steve Lawson writes, God's weight, or glory, is the greatness of who he is. His glory is the awesome gravity of his name, the infinite wealth of his divine attributes, as is found in his holiness, sovereignty, wrath, grace, goodness, and so forth. Every aspect of his character is immeasurably heavy, incomparably great, beyond any human's character or ability. Being absolutely perfect, God is awesome in every way. He is a true heavyweight in every one of his divine attributes. Because God is God, he is the only being of whom it can be said that he possesses inherent glory. We cannot give this glory to him. This glory belongs to God by virtue of who he is. Accordingly, God's intrinsic glory cannot change. It would be impossible for him to increase in his glory because that would mean that he was previously less than perfect. Nor can God diminish in his glory because he is always the same, forever glorious. God was, is, and shall be glorious throughout all the ages to come. Lawson goes on to write, Tragically, in the church today, we often lack a corresponding weightiness regarding the utter profoundness of God's character and attributes. Instead, frivolity and superficiality fueled by a user-friendly God pervades much of Christianity. This development can be traced back to our failure to consider the heaviness of His most holy character. So are you aware of the holiness in glory of God. How often it is that we are like those crazy people petting lions and tigers when it comes to our perspective of God. But I would say that wasn't the case with these demons. Even though they hated God and would never worship God, they still revered Him and saw Him as the holy and glorious King. The second attribute we see here is that God is sovereign, and we see that in verses 30 and 31. In verse 30, Jesus engages the demons by asking the name of the demons, to which they respond by saying, Legion. Their name was Legion. So this man was possessed by many demons. The Roman term for legion refers to up to 6,000 soldiers. So in our passage today, if taken literally, this man was possessed by 6,000 demons. Certainly enough demons to fill up 2,000 pigs, which was the, the number of the herd of pigs, uh, according to Mark's account in Mark 5. It's important to note that all of these demons responded to Jesus in the same way. In verse 31, the legion of demons implored Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. And this is an interesting statement for Luke to have included. First, we see that even though the demons were enemies of Jesus, they acknowledged that he still had power and authority over them. These demons were unable to do anything without Jesus' awareness and permission. Furthermore, if Jesus gave a command to them, they were obligated to follow it. 
And the demons asked that Jesus not command them to go down to the abyss. Now, why would they implore Jesus not to command this? It obviously indicates that these demons had some awareness of the end times. They must have known about passages like Jude 6 or 2 Peter 2 verse 4 that mention the pit or the abyss where God sends demons. And they may have even eyewitnessed some of their fellow demons being cast into the pit. And we see in Revelation 9 that this pit will be opened by Satan during the Great Tribulation and all of the demons will come back into the world before their final destruction in the lake of fire. So Jesus' coming to them here at the shore seemed to scare them into thinking that their time was up or that Jesus had somehow changed his timeline on them. You see, Jesus is in control of all things in the present time, allowing certain things and permitting the occurrence of others all for his purposes. And the demons also knew that Jesus has a future plan that would include their destruction. So in short, these demons were well aware of the sovereignty of God. This was plainly apparent to them, and it scared them. How about you? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? His ability to use all things for His purposes. His permitting of evil for a time as part of His greater plan. And ultimately, His eternal plan that not only saves and gathers all believers to be with Him for eternity, but also condemns those who reject Him. The third attribute we see is that God is merciful, and that's found in verses 32 and 33. In verse 32, it says that there, were a hit, there was a herd of pigs on a hillside. In Matthew's account, we read that these pigs were feeding, quote, at some distance from them. So they were visible, but far away. They weren't right next to this demon-possessed man but far away at a distance. The legion of demons implored, or they begged Jesus to permit them to go into the herd. They didn't want to go. These demons were quite happy before Jesus came, doing their deeds with freedom among the Gentiles, but they knew that they had to go now. And interestingly, again, the demons asked for Jesus' permission. Why Why didn't these demons just come out of the man and go to the pigs themselves. Well, we saw before, they were physically, they were, they were in the physical presence of God and they had no choice but to follow his commands. And Jesus sovereignly set this scene so that he could clearly demonstrate to everyone that it was he who was casting this multitude of demons out of the man and into the pigs. So in verse 32, we see it says that Jesus gave them permission And in verse 33, we see that the demons exited this man and went into the herd. And in the same violent way as they treated this man, the demons caused these pigs to rush down the steep bank and die in the lake. So this doesn't sound very merciful, but note three things. Number one, note what the demons feared and what they deserved. Number two, note the alternative that they begged Jesus to permit. And number three, note Jesus' merciful permission. The demons here, they knew that they were faced, or at least they thought that they were being faced with their eternal destruction. And they begged Jesus to permit them to come out of the man and to go into the pigs, thereby allowing them to run away from the physical presence of God and avoid their eternal destruction. And Jesus, in his sovereign power very easily could have destroyed these demons immediately. And yet, 
In accordance with his sovereign plan, he mercifully allowed these demons to have another way to escape. So Jesus spared them, and he withheld their eventual judgment. And that's amazing mercy. So let me ask you, are you aware? Are you actively aware of God's mercy? Romans 9 verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Understand, we are all actively living with God's mercy. So three attributes. God is the holy, glorious God, holy, glorious King. Number two, he is sovereign. Number three, he is merciful. So now let's look at three different responses from three different parties brought face to face with these attributes of God. First, we'll look at the demon's response. And we'll see this response in verses 28 through 33. And we can characterize the demon's response as being characterized by fear, submission, torment, begging, and ultimately being cast away from God. Right? The demons were, dis- were are destined for destruction. They had no desire and no intention of turning back to God, and yet, when they were brought face to face with God Himself, they could only respond in fear. They were tormented, as it says. But the demons submitted to God, and they begged to be sent away. And I want to come back to this, this term used here in verse 28, torment. That term, torment... The Greek term used here is bazanitzo. It's the same verb used for torturing or terrorizing, inflicting severe pain, suffering, or distress. And it's used a total of 12 times in the New Testament. And three of those times alone are in the three accounts of this story, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's used an additional five times in the book of Revelation, two of those times used to describe the eternal destruction of Satan, demons, and their followers. And while God is not a torturer and God is not a terrorist, the sentiment from the demons that we see here is that they felt tortured and terrorized. And that's what happens when pure evil and sin are brought in front of a holy God. God is not tormented, but the guilty one is. This same term as a noun, the Greek term bazanos, is used in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we see in Luke 16. And we can turn there, just flip over a few chapters in Luke 16. Again, another familiar story probably to all of us. Luke 16, verses 19 through 21, uh, 19 through 31 and uh, we'll, we'll come right into it here to verse uh, 22. And it says, The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In verse 23 it says, In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So I don't think it's a mistake that we see this same response between this condemned rich man 
and the demons in our story who were brought before God. Like demons, those who reject God and choose not to repent of sin will spend eternity experiencing this torment that comes from the intense pain, agony, and anguish caused by sin, contrasted with God's holiness. In contrast, as believers, we thank God that we are forgiven and that He disciplines those He loves in the process of sanctification, particularly as it pertains to sin. In Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, we see David writing in the guilt of his sin. He says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But when David repented, note what he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So these demons were tormented in the presence of Jesus. They were basically experiencing what they and all condemned sinners will be experiencing in hell for eternity, utter torment. Without repentance and with the continued pursuit of evil, all will experience eternal fear and torment, just like these demons did. The second response that we can see here in our passage is the public's response, and that we find in verses 34 through 37. And we can look at these verses and we can characterize the public's response as having fear, rejecting God, and distancing themselves from God. So in verse 34, we see the herdsmen tending to the pigs that had just died at the hands of the demons. And they ran away and they told everyone in the city and out in the country. So everybody in that region heard about what had happened And in verse 35, it says that the people came to Jesus. Literally, the entire city came. And what is it it that they saw? In verse 35, it says they saw the previously possessed man sitting with Jesus. And the herdsmen, in verse 36, the herdsmen themselves, they gave their eyewitness account of how Jesus saved this man. Notice there was no mention of the pigs but only a specific attention to Jesus and this man's healing. And so the public, these Gentile people, were brought face to face with the one who performed this amazing miracle, right? There is no doubt about what had happened. There is this horrifically demon-possessed man. Everybody knew this man, right? They tried to avoid him at all costs. They bound him up. Everybody knew about this man, And these herdsmen told of how these demons were cast out into these pigs and drowned. And now this man is sitting next to Jesus. And all of this was done at Jesus' command. But unfortunately, in verse 37, what do we see here? We see that the Gentile people in the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. And why? In verse 37 it says... For they were gripped with great fear. And just like the demons implored and begged Jesus, the the crowd also begged him to leave. 
And I want to kind of focus on this fear that is mentioned here. We have another example of this type of fear in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. This is the, the story of God's presence coming down, descending at Mount Sinai before the Israelites. And it says in verse 19 of Exodus 20, The Israelites said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, for we will die. The Israelites thought that if God directly spoke to them that they would die. They were so afraid of God that they only wanted Moses to speak for God to them. It's important to recognize that this is an inappropriate fear. It's not a reverential fear of God that brings about obedience and personal holiness, but a fear of God's power and wrath, which should be appropriately feared, but it's fueled by intimidation which does not supersede the love of one's own sin. In case in point, after this encounter with God at Mount Sinai, we see story after story, event after event, of Israel's blatant sin and disobedience toward God. That's the kind of fear that we're seeing here in these Gentile people in Luke 8. John MacArthur writes, of these Gentiles, they knew they were seeing the great power of God, and they knew it was a holy power, a purging, purifying, cleansing power that dispensed with evil, and they therefore knew that they were exposed as sinners, and loving their evil so much they wanted to get rid of the intimidation. So that's an inappropriate fear. And it's quite the opposite of the fear of God that stems from a right perspective of who He is. Let's turn to Isaiah 6 really quickly. Isaiah 6, this is, again, a familiar passage. You guys might recognize that one of the songs we sang this morning stems from this, our great God. But it says in, in verse, uh, verses 1, uh, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Verse 2, Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. And they were flying. Verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, this is Isaiah's response to seeing all of this imagery of being before the throne of God. What does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here we see Isaiah brought before the very presence of God, and he is immediately made aware of his sinfulness and the sins of of his people. And he says, woe is me. Right? But this reverential fear then goes on. And gives rise to this. We see in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. 
Right? That, is a, that is a right fear of God, a fear that brings one to obedience, repentance, and personal holiness. And we sing about this uh, in a very um, common, well-known hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace. Right? You guys know the verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And that brings us to the last response here. This is the healed man's response in verses 38 and 39. And this is the most amazing response, obviously. When brought face to face with the glory and majesty and sovereignty and mercy of God, the saved man also received God's grace. There's no doubt that with the casting out of the legion of demons, this man was also forgiven of his sins and reconciled to God. We see absolute, complete transformation in this man, right? It says that he was sitting clothed in his right mind by his Savior at the feet of Jesus. This is complete transformation. This previously horrific, uncontrolled, demon-possessed, naked, perverse individual, we would classify him as being a maniac, and now he is clothed in his right mind. He's tempered, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. In verse 38, how does this man respond? We see that this saved man was begging Jesus, right? But he wasn't begging Jesus to leave. Rather, he was begging to go with Jesus. He was begging to accompany Jesus. He was healed and he was redeemed and he longed to be in the presence of his Savior, to be where his Savior was, to go with his Savior wherever he would go. See, God's love and care for those He has saved draws them to Him. This is the amazing picture of redemption, where this demon-filled man was once separated from God, but transformed not from anything of his own doing or by his own intentions, but completely by the grace of God. Those who have been saved by grace find peace and comfort in God. R.C. Sproul writes, Two things that every human... Every human being must come to understand our, one, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of His majesty, purity, and holiness, then we are instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption. When that happens, we fly to grace because we recognize that there is no way that we could ever stand before God apart from grace. And in verse 38 and 39, Jesus sends this man out and he commands the man to return to his house and proclaim the great things God has done, to which we see that this man gladly responded in obedience and did exactly as Jesus commanded. And similarly, our desire as believers is to be with God for eternity, which he has already promised to his church. But for the time being, he has commanded us to remain here and to proclaim the great things he has done. Paul writes in Philippians 1, verses 22 through 25, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. For the gospel, right? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And that, that exemplifies what we have here with this healed man. I want to wrap up here just by um, sharing... Uh, 
from John MacArthur's exposition of this same story from the book of Mark. And this is incredibly special. I I was incredibly encouraged by this. This demon-possessed man was the first missionary that Jesus sent out. And in Mark's account, in Mark 5, verse 20, it says, After Jesus commissioned this man to go to his home country and share of what the Lord did to and for him, it says that the man went to Decapolis, a region of ten Greek-influenced Gentile cities. And as he went to this region and shared, in verse 20 of Mark 5, it says that everyone was amazed. Later on in Mark 7... Verse 31, Jesus himself goes to Decapolis. And it says in verse 31 that he is met by crowds who brought those who needed and wanted healing. So how did, how did that happen? While many of the Gentiles rejected Jesus at their first encounter with him, after hearing about what happened to this demon-possessed man, The personal testimony of this man himself resulted in many of them coming to Jesus later, seeking healing and salvation. So may this be an encouragement to us to continue to pray for and share the gospel with those who may have previously or are still presently rejecting him. So from this this passage, we see three attributes of God, three responses to these attributes. We see God is the holy and glorious King, God is sovereign, and God is merciful. And we saw three responses from the demons, from the Gentile public, and from the healed man. Do you have a right perspective of God? That He is the holy, glorious King, sovereign and merciful. How will you respond? Are you tormented? Are you permanently bent against God like the demons were? We thank God that we're not demons, right? They have no hope. Are you scared of your sinfulness before God? But are you afraid and unwilling to give it up? Because you consider this life or your lifestyle under your control and you're unwilling to submit to Him. Do you beg that God would leave you? Or do you long to sit at His feet to obey His word and His instructions to preach the gospel and to be part of His church all while you wait for your eternity with Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being the eternal and unchanging God, the holy and glorious King, sovereign and merciful. Thank you for your grace that you have bestowed on those who repent of sin and place their faith in you. We pray that your word and the Holy Spirit would shape and reshape our view of who you are, that we would be continually aware of your holiness and glory that we would have a proper view of sin and a humble view of ourselves, thanking you for salvation and obediently following your commands. Lord, if anyone here today has not repented and put their trust in you, I pray that they would do so, that they too may experience the same kind of transformation we saw in the demon-possessed man, 
that can only happen by your grace and power. We thank you again and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.